the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 62 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. The most obvious reason for rejecting this view is that there's nothing in this sermon that states it or even implies that Christ's teaching was for followers of a future age. There's nothing here about that. The text just doesn't say that. What it does tell us is that he addressed his teachings about righteous living to first century disciples who were sitting in front of him. He told them how to live. He told them how to obey. He told them to seek first the kingdom of God. They weren't in the millennial kingdom. It doesn't make any sense if he's telling them to do something that doesn't pertain to them. You are listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve will be concluding, today, his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. In order to understand any Bible passage or any other written document for that matter, it is essential that we know something of the original audience. Who was Jesus speaking to and about? There are those in the evangelical community who believe and teach that Jesus was teaching about his future millennial kingdom. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and see why the Sermon on the Mount only makes sense if we understand that it is directed at us. Then we will get a brief overview to prepare us for the lessons coming up over the next month or so. Here is Pastor Steve. There are statements in this sermon in which Jesus refers, and note this, this is important, to God's kingdom as a present reality, not something in the future, but a present reality. He does that, by the way, in chapter 5, verse 3, when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not it will be, it is. Chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. And then the verse that I just quoted, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom is here and his righteousness is here. Very important. So a major thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that the reason his disciples are to be different and distinct than those around them is because we as his followers have already entered into the kingdom. We are already followers of the king And as such, we belong to his kingdom, and therefore we need to live according to kingdom principles. Therefore, to put it very succinctly, the Sermon on the Mount is a message about kingdom living here and now. But having said that, not everybody sees it that way. Not everybody does. In fact, many students of Scripture believe that most of the Sermon on the Mount is irrelevant for us today because they say that it pertains entirely to Israel, the Jewish people, for a future kingdom age. In fact, 
Years ago, a woman in our church said, I, I'd like to talk to you about something. What she wanted to talk to me about, what troubled her, is that our uh, Thursday morning ladies' Bible study was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and they were teaching that this is these are truths for the church age, not for a future messianic kingdom, and, and she, didn't, she didn't agree with that. Now, where did she come up with that? That view, well, that's one of the 36 interpretations. But she had been taught by certain popular Bible teachers, uh, dispensational teachers. Dispensational teacher means someone who makes a distinction, rightly so, between Israel and the church. But these teachers tended to go overboard in their distinctions. The, the most well-known of those teachers is the famous C.I. Schofield of the Schofield Study Bible. Dr. Schofield believed, as as do many other dispensational prominent Bible teachers, that that the Sermon on the Mount is not for church-age believers. They believe that this sermon is exclusively for the Jewish people in a coming future age. In other words, they say this is a sermon in which Jesus was telling the Jewish people not how to live now, but how they should live in the coming millennial kingdom when Christ will literally and physically reign on the earth. And, And the reason they arrive at this interpretation is because they view the whole setting as this, that Jesus came preaching repentance to the nation of Israel. And when she would repent nationally, he would establish his kingdom. I, I think that's right. I think that's that's correct. But they say since she did not, since she did not nationally repent, he did not establish his physical kingdom on earth. So far, I'm with them. I think that's right. So they say when he returns after Israel repents, he will then set up his millennial kingdom. I'm there too. I think that's right. And they say the principles he lays down in the Sermon on the Mount will then come into effect for the Jewish people to live by. That's where I'm not there. I'm not there because I think that's wrong. Now, I believe that we need to make a distinction between Israel and the church. I think that's the only way to consistently interpret the Bible in a literal, normal language approach. Otherwise, you have to spiritualize uh, so many things. And I believe that that there is a coming future, literal, physical kingdom on earth after Israel repents during the tribulation period and Jesus comes and will reign out of literal, physical Jerusalem. Of course, it'll be changed then, but I, I believe the Bible teaches that. And I believe Jesus indicated the future aspect of that kingdom in Matthew 6, verse 10, when he taught us what many call the Lord's Prayer, verse 10, your kingdom come. We're to pray for that. Your kingdom come, which tells us that, that not all aspects of the kingdom has come. So what we, what we see from this, there is a present aspect. Wherever the king reigns, if he reigns in your heart, the kingdom has come. But there is a future aspect of the kingdom. And those who, who believe this interpretation I was telling you don't see that, that present aspect. They see only the future aspect. But I tell you, to say that the Sermon on the Mount is reserved for Jewish believers of a distant age, I think it's wrong, and it fails to take into account the spiritual aspect of the kingdom today. Even the Apostle Paul spoke of this very clearly in Colossians 1.13. Paul said, for he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, meaning God has done that, and he has transferred us, to note this, to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're now in the kingdom. That's what Paul said, and that's, that's what Jesus was saying. There's a kingdom aspect right now, right now. But in addition to this, 
And I think they missed the point of this. But in addition to this, there are some very significant internal reasons why I would reject this view. And I would encourage you to reject this view, even though uh, these are dear uh, men of God who hold to it. I want to give you some, some important reasons why this view is, is not correct. Let me give you three reasons. The most obvious reason for rejecting this view is that there's nothing in this sermon that states it or even implies that Christ's teaching was for followers of a future age. There's nothing here about that. The text just doesn't say that. What it does tell us is that he addressed his teachings about righteous living to first century disciples who were sitting in front of him. He told them how to live. He told them how to obey. He told them to seek first the kingdom of God. They weren't in the millennial kingdom. It doesn't make any sense if he's telling them to do something that doesn't pertain to them. So the first reason is, and most obvious, the text just doesn't say that. You have to read into it. Secondly, many of the conditions mentioned in this sermon won't be, nor can they be, a reality during the millennial kingdom. I think this is an extremely important argument. For example, Jesus speaks about persecution. If this is for the millennial kingdom, what persecution is going on then? There's no persecution of believers. Jesus speaks in chapter 7, verse 15, about false prophets who mislead people. Who's misleading anybody? Who's a false, going to be a false prophet during the millennial kingdom? It won't exist. And then he speaks in chapter 6 about worrying about money. Who's going to worry about money during the kingdom age? So if we say that the Sermon on the Mount is only for a future kingdom age, then it really makes much of the content of this sermon absolutely meaningless because he's speaking about conditions that, uh, that, that won't exist. Now, yesterday I gave Michelle, my wife, a little preview of this sermon, and she said, well, how do they, how do these teachers, uh, why would they say this when these conditions don't exist? And you know what they say? Now, I'm just going to give you a, an illustration of imposing on the text and stretching it to fit your a theological bias. They say that the persecution and the false prophets and, and all other things, yes, they won't be in the millennial kingdom, but they will be in the tribulation, which leads to the millennium. Now, there is nothing that states anything like that in this sermon. That's called not exposition, but imposition. That's imposing upon the text, something that's not there. Now, a third reason for rejecting the future millennial view of this sermon is that every single principle taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is found, beloved, in, in all the other New Testament letters. It's found in the New Testament letters addressed to Christians in this age. So if we say that this isn't relevant for us, then why is Jesus telling us what Paul and Peter and James and John repeated in New Testament letters for us? It's most definitely for us. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is for genuine disciples of every age because it tells us how to live as citizens of his kingdom in a, and watch this, in a fallen, sinful world, not a utopian age. This isn't a sermon on the mount when everything is together in society. This isn't a sermon, rather, for when everything is right in society. This is how to live as a child of the king when you live in a fallen world because the kingdom age hasn't come yet. It's just the opposite. The, the millennial kingdom is not here. So the question is, then, how shall we live in light? of people who persecute us, in light of, of people who, who are attempting to mislead us, in light of people who hate us, in light of my own sinfulness. How do I live? Not in the future, but today. That's what the sermon is about. Is about. So now that you understand the central point of this sermon, kingdom living now, you can see the big picture of how Jesus developed the sermon. Remember every sermon 
has structure. The Sermon on the Mount, as I told you, has three points. Very quickly, I want to just highlight these three points. This will help you. It'll give you a big picture. And then when we get into it in weeks to come, you'll, you should have a handle on it and know where we're going. The first point that Christ gives is he describes the character of citizens in his kingdom. The, our very makeup, our very character, our, who we are, who we really are. And he does that beginning with verse 3. We have the Beatitudes, called the Beatitudes, the blessed are. Beatitude means essentially happy. And what this means is that these are brief, pithy statements that reveal the true character of Christ's disciples and the blessedness that comes from being in a right relationship with God. Not talking, by the way, about happiness in the world sense, but true, genuine happiness. We're really blessed because we are in a right relationship with God. These statements describe our character, the transformed character of what we really are. And we and, and you can see from this, we are different from the world. We're supposed to be different from the world because the world would look at these verses and say, these are not blessings. These are not blessings, but these are blessings to us. For example, Jesus describes us, among other character traits, as being poor in spirit. The world doesn't want to be poor in anything. He describes us as mourning for our sin. The world wants to be happy. They don't want to mourn for anything. Gentle. The world is not gentle. The world grabs everything it can get. It doesn't esteem others more important. We're described as hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The world does not hunger and thirst for righteousness. It hates righteousness. And we're described as being persecuted. The world persecutes. It is not persecuted. These are not the kind of people our world considers blessed at all. They consider the wealthy, the powerful, the strong, the people who have their act together, not the weepy people over their sins as blessed. And this doesn't mean that we are perfect in these character qualities. No one is. But it does mean that that Christ has inwardly began a work of transforming you. You have a new nature given at the new birth. And, And in light of that, you have a different character. Your makeup, your desires are different. You are poor in spirit. And I'll explain when we get to that what that means. You do weep over your sins. You are gentle. If not perfect, that's the direction and the desire of your life. And that leads us to a second point of the sermon. The first point is the character of citizens in the kingdom. But because we have the right character, we now have the capacity to obey the righteous principles laid down in the sermon. So from the character of citizens in the kingdom, our Lord tells us about the conduct of citizens in the kingdom. How are we to behave? In light of the fact that we're different inwardly, how are we to behave now outwardly as well as our own inward attitudes. And verse 20 of chapter 5 is a key verse. In fact, many believe this is the key verse of the whole sermon. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, your righteousness better be more than external performance. It needs to be internal. And in a secondary sense, he is he is referring to the fact that that these men did not have uh, any relationship with the Lord. Those of us who know Christ have his imputed righteousness to us. On our account in heaven, it says declared righteous. But I think beyond that, what he's saying is these men simply simply had outward behavior trying to conform to, to legalistic codes. Your righteousness as citizens of the kingdom need to come from the heart. And that's when he explains the law and gives us an understanding of the real righteousness is obedience from the heart. And so, as I said before, Jesus is teaching, for example, that 
that you don't obey the commandment to not murder by just refraining from taking someone's life. God looks at the heart, and so you don't want to even be angry with someone because God considers that murder. That's how he looks at it. Now, so he speaks about the law. What, is, what did Jesus say is the, is the greatest law? He said the, the greatest commandments in the law is to love God with all of your heart. The second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. So in chapter 6 and 7, Jesus tells us first about if we love God, what should be our devotion to him in terms of righteous behavior? And if we love people, what should be our devotion to them? That's why in chapter 6, we read once again, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your father who's in heaven. Our devotion to God is to be from a heart that wants to please him, not impress other people. And that's why Jesus teaches us how to, how to really pray, how to really give, how to really fast, not like, not like the religious hypocrites. And we're not to be like pagans either who devote their lives to pursuing material uh, wealth and accumulating things. Instead, we respond to God by trusting him. We trust him to meet our needs as we devote ourselves to pursuing obedience. That's the end of Matthew 6. Notice verse 31. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Isn't that encouragement? Your heavenly father knows. So seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do not worry then about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Our Lord isn't saying quit your job and and just pray. And he's not saying don't work hard and, and just sit around and be passive. What he is saying in the midst of working hard, in the midst of, of, of doing your normal chores and providing for your family, make sure that, that, that your career and worrying about how you're going to accumulate more and more and more and more is not the priority of your life. Work hard, but make sure the priority is to seek first obedient righteousness. So that's chapter six. Uh, and and the, the conduct of believers is we, if we love God, we pray to please him, we fast to please him, we, we give to please him, and we don't worry about these things. But the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself. And so as chapter seven opens, Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. And he speaks about how to resolve issues about, about our own attitude towards other people. And then, of course, chapter 7, verse 12, tells us of the golden rule, which ought to govern our relationship with others. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. And then isn't this a great statement? Jesus said, for this is the law and the prophets. This sums up everything. Love God and love people. And if you love people, treat them, speak to them the way you want to be spoken to. Treat them with courtesy the way you want to be treated with courtesy. Be honest to them the way you want them to be honest to you. So the first two points of this sermon tell us the character and the conduct of those within Christ's kingdom. However, remember I said there there was a third group or a third point, and that is because Jesus did not neglect the crowd that day. He didn't neglect the crowd of primarily unbelievers. And so as our Lord brings the sermon to a close, he does so by addressing the crowd of people with his third point, And that is, there's an exhortation to enter his kingdom. If you don't have the character of citizens of the kingdom, and you certainly cannot have the behavior or the conduct of citizens of the kingdom, then you need to know 
that there's an invitation. And yes, he closes with an invitation of an exhortation to enter the kingdom. Notice verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. Enter where? The kingdom. The kingdom. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. This is an evangelistic invitation. Jesus is basically saying, come by way of me. I am that narrow gate. So he's inviting unbelievers to trust him. Assuming that some of them did or would do that, then the Lord tells them, and and this is just brilliant how it all flows out. He tells them how to make progress in the kingdom. You enter the kingdom by believing in him. How do you make progress in the kingdom? Well, he tells us, he warns us about something that could trip us up. Verse 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are savage wolves. He says, if you want to make progress in the kingdom, don't listen to false teachers. Then then who do we listen to? If we're in the kingdom. You listen to the king. That's why he closes the sermon in verses 24 and 25. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. What our Lord is saying, you enter the kingdom through me and just listen to me. You build your lives in my kingdom upon my righteous words. And you know what? When Jesus was finished with this sermon, they were all astonished. As I told you before, nobody had ever heard anything like this. And still nobody today has ever preached a sermon like this. This is the greatest sermon given from the lips of the greatest preacher. Because it is the authoritative sermon of all sermons from the authoritative king. The question is, is he your personal king? Is he your personal king? Or do you do you play with Christianity? Are you just a church-going individual? Or has Christ become the King and Lord of your life? That's, that's the real issue. Jesus did not mince words on this. Jesus did not say that there's an easy path. He said, if you're going to follow the King, then you need to follow him by obeying the principles of the kingdom. So are you within his kingdom? Have you entered through the narrow gate? It is narrow. It is not open. It is narrow. It is, it is very narrow. You open by him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me because only Christ has died for sinners. And if you know you're a sinner, been convicted, because you don't keep the law. Nobody perfectly keeps the law. No, everybody has anger in their heart. Every man here has, has struggled with lust in his heart. Every single one. We are all sinners. So if we're going to, going to enter the kingdom, you have to know that you're a sinner and know that Christ died for sinners and you trust him as the one who paid for your sin. And when that happens, not only will you be forgiven, but you become one who is now a follower of the king and you become one who is committed to obeying the king and the best place to begin obeying him is the Sermon on the Mount. Let's bow for prayer. If you have never repented of your sin and entered the kingdom through the narrow way, then I, I urge you to, to, to let us help you. Come up when we close the sermon. One of our leaders will be here, maybe even a few at the front, 
And they'll be happy to explain it to you. If you tell them, I want to know more about accepting Christ, they'll, they'll privately explain that to you. But for those of us who claim to know the Lord, my question to you is, do you live like you're a child of the King? Do you live in every area of your life, business and family and retirement and relationship with others? This is why we sang before, Lord, you are the potter. I am the clay to shape me. He will, but you have to follow his word. Father, thank you for this greatest of all sermons. May, may our lives be transformed. May, may we be, Lord, when we come through this, may we be as astonished as the crowd, as the crowd of people that day. And not simply astonished because it has so much authority, but astonished at its truth, its profundity, its, its nobility. I pray that our lives would be transformed. I pray that we'll never be the same as we see what kingdom living is all about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes Pastor Steve Kreloff's introductory overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Next time on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will begin an in-depth study of this marvelous sermon by the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Steve is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These radio adaptations of his messages are produced by Verse by Verse Ministries. We're on the web at versebyverseradio.org. It often helps to listen to a sermon all at one time rather than in parts. If you would like to do that, you can order an audio CD or a cassette by calling us at 727 239 0306. Pastor Steve. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.